0: Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah! Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. I know we're somewhere because I'm there. I... <laughs> Your microphone isn't even working today. What a blessing. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm Burl Bear. That's Mark Boyer, fact checker, co-host. Got some great guests coming up on the show. guest is Alex Merklinger. Hi, Alex. Hello, Burl. How are you? Live and well and better and better. I've known Alex for... Gee, about uh, about almost 50 years, which shows how old we are. Uh, The Human Potential Movement is a movement that focused on helping normal people achieve their full potential through a neglected combination of therapeutic methods and disciplines. Uh, Human Potential is described as the innate ability of every person to live and perform in alignment with their highest self. It's a combination of both outer and inner work, and the guy who received more press and publicity worldwide for being one of the catalysts of the human potential movement is with us on the show today. And that's Alex Merklinger. Is my definition of the one I read, is that fairly accurate, Alex?
1: You know, it is, um uh, it, it, it covers the very scale. Uh, in on the top of it, but yes, that's, that's really what it is, what we started, and you were back there too, because you did it with me, uh, we enabled people to reach a higher potential within themselves, and it was interesting, we were the first people to do it, by the way, I, I was actually teaching back in the
0: 1960s. Whoa! Yep, that's what it says right here in our, in the research that Mark Boyer put together, that that's just about when the, while there were precursors to it, that's kind of when it took off, and uh, you were doing that stuff in New York City,
1: New York City. Uh, yep. Yeah. Let let me keep you. The history of when the new age and uh, the human potential movement started. Please do. I have been teaching around uh, the Northeast for several years. And then I, I had at one time uh, about 12 other people that worked for me as teachers. And one day we got together and I said, okay, we've we got to stop teaching, you know, 25 and 30 people at a time because this is too important. Who wants to go to New York City? And none of them wanted to. They said, oh, it will cost so much money, you know. <laughs> So I said, okay, I'll do it, but I never want to hear anybody complain about it. And I went out the next day and borrowed all I could against my house. And it was about uh, seventeen dollars or $18,000. And I put two ads in the Sunday New York Times and went to the grand ballroom of the Ambassador Hotel, which is above, or was in those days, I don't know who's there now, uh, Grand Central Station. And uh, at the time, I, I never liked weight Oh, and bro, the interesting thing was I charged $5 for people to come and hear me talk. And it was worth it. Well, I, I used to tell him, I said, I'm as good as any movie. I'm entertaining. <laughs> That's so true. We, 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 used to, we, we used to charge $5 a head. Well... I didn't wait for it, but when the time come came to uh, start my lecture to tell people, you know, what we do and why it works, I walked down from my apartment down to Grand Central Station, and there was a, a crowd of people outside of the station. that went round Forty Second Street down to Lexington Avenue, and then up. And I climbed the stairs up to the Grand Ballroom of the hotel, and it was crowded. And, I, and I, it never dawned on me why, until I walked into the grand ballroom, and there was about 3,000 people there and about uh, equal number in the, the uh, vestibule trying to get in. And I always said, that is the beginning of the New Age movement and the human potential movement. So that started it, I think.
0: Well, out of those 3,000 people at five bucks a head, they got you off to a good start. <laughs>
1: It, it, it did. It, uh, I because today that's worth probably what two fifty or something, like
0: that. <laughs> yeah, or or twenty five cents, something along those lines. Now we used to give well, a Wednesday night lecture, as I recall, and uh, that's correct. And uh, charge for that, and then from that Wednesday night lecture, people would sign up for the weekend seminar, the entire course, which had this amazing guarantee. You'll be psychic by Sunday or your money back. All right, that's correct. And that is what blew most people's minds. And I can even remember some people saying, well, this has got to be a scam. You know, this has got to be some sort of, you know, trick. But the amazing thing, and you said this to me, is that the transference of thought from one person to another without speaking is the easiest thing to teach and for people to realize happens all the time. And I Definitely. don't know if you remember That's this correct. or not, Alex, but I came as your guest to the first class you did in Seattle, Washington, because we met on a radio show in Portland. And there is an right. exercise right. that Alex teaches where you build a mental workshop in your imagination. And you can have this be anywhere in on or out of the world, whatever. Right. And uh, And
2: when the exercise was over, you said, did anybody have anything unusual happen? Well, I did. You did? Yes. Uh, during that training, in my mind, I built an armoire. <laughs>
0: you did? Well, I'm so happy for you. And I raised my hand and I said, yeah, Alex, I had this really weird thing happen. I'm creating this imaginary workshop in my mind and there's a knock at the door <laughs> And I opened it, and there was a woman standing there who was one of the other students in the class. All I know is her name was Eve, and she has two chairs, which she which I called Les Crane chairs, which are like these plexiglass yeah. chairs, like the size of bar stools, that uh, yeah. Les Crane used on his TV show that was on ABC uh, network at 11:30 at night. And she says here. You can have these two Les Crane chairs for your workshop because I don't need them anymore. And I said, that's really strange. And, and what is that? Why is she showing up in my metal workshop? And if you recall, the woman Eve said, I know why. I'm Les Crane's ex-wife.
1: I was <laughs> oh, crying out loud. No. I am. Oh, I, I, don't... I have to apologize. <laughs> I don't, don't ever we should
2: delve into Burl's mind.
0: <laughs> so that's kind of, kind of, just goes something weird going on here. When I didn't know she was his ex-wife, and why she's showing up in my imaginary workshop, giving me two less crane chairs. That was uh, that was your first class in Seattle. There was uh, in a little bookshop, and that was my first introduction to you. And why is it? And maybe you could explain this. Why is it that this thought transference, uh, being able to be influenced by what other people are thinking, even if they're not talking to you, how does that work? Or do you have any idea why that works?
1: Well, uh, I go back to uh, even what uh, Christ said in the Bible, and he said, you know, to think something or to imagine it is as bad as doing it because in reality, you have already done it. And stuff like that always uh, remained in my, my mind. And all of a sudden I realized, because I used to do a lot of reading in those days, too. And uh, I read the story of Edgar Casey, And I said, I know what he's doing. And it's the the visualization is the key to the whole thing. And when you visualize, you're at a certain level of consciousness. And if you're, let's say you're trying to get a message to somebody else. If you understand what time that person wakes up in the morning, if you get up a half hour earlier and start to visualize that person and talk to them and see them. Responding exactly how you would like it to, they're picking up that message. Now, they may have it in a dream, they may have it in their subconscious mind, but they do pick it up because it has to do with the vibrations of the different brain waves. And distance, as you mentioned, distance doesn't matter because there is no distance at that level. And there's no time at that level either.
0: It's an amazing thing. One of the exercises that you would do at the very beginning of, of your seminars, is you'd have everybody create a bouquet of flowers in their imagination. And then imagine they could feel the texture of the flower petal and you know inhale the fragrance. And then you'd have people create a vase, a vase, whatever you want to call it, to put the flowers in. And this could be any uh, shape, size, any decoration, whatever. Make that and put the flowers in it. Then when we were done, you'd say, did anybody here have a problem that you had something in your mind that you created, but it kept changing on you? And about three-quarters of the class would raise their hand, yeah. And you had us say, what was, I could say, Burl, what was your, your vase? Well, it would say, like, I had a blue one, but it kept getting these clanky handles on the side. And then there'd be a panther on it or some weird stuff. And then you would ask us, the people around us, what were they thinking? And it was always what they were thinking would influence what everyone else in the room was thinking. And that was the first thing you you did. And so it must be easy to teach people to read minds, man, because you had people reading minds the very first exercise we did.
1: Yeah, and well, people do that all day long, and they're just not aware of it. They they think like. Uh When they're looking at somebody, if they start to get thoughts, they're probably picking up information from that person. And even science today says that if if you're somewhere and all of a sudden you start to think of a a person who you know, time doesn't matter how far back it goes. They said that they have proven uh, time and time again that at that same time that all of a sudden this person uh, popped into your head again, They're thinking of you, so you're going back and forth. And yeah, it it is easy to teach people that. And once they learn how to do that, my gosh, think of the the communication people can have between each other. You know, people won't be able to lie to you. Uh, you, You'll know things without even uh, asking it. How many times do uh, do people hear a phone ring? And the first person that comes to their mind, they go into the phone, and it's that person.
2: Right, yeah, I've seen that happen many times with my mother and her twin sister.
1: Right, right. Yeah, mom,
2: my mother. I just uh, imagine, Johnny's calling, and then the phone would ring.
1: Yep. And they know, ahead. I mean, that's, that's incredible if you look at it from the point of view that most of us don't even look at this stuff anymore. When, when we started to teach, Earl, it was something that was so new. Like right. you said, I, I had the, uh, the good fortune of being written about in, uh, oh gosh, I hate to say it, but it was well over 100 magazines. Uh, all over the world and then probably every major newspaper in the world about what we were doing in New York City
0: hmm.
1: and that opened up something but it seems to have died down because we're we're going off in the wrong direction right now uh, especially the young kids they're not interested in the mind they're not interested in in some of the things that we had talked about and and taught in the classes
0: hmm. That's true, but, and I, know, think that, I think part of that—I think part of that—is a little bit on purpose, uh, as it said, a well-informed uh, electorate is important to the functioning of a democracy. And I've yeah. often thought the dumbing down <laughs> of of people is uh, perhaps semi-intentional.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I'm, um, Mark has a question for you. you know, I'm, yeah, Mark. I'm taking the the devil's advocate position. You know, I I hearken back to my childhood in a particular Gilligan's Island episode where he finds some sunflower seeds growing wild and they give everyone the ability to read everyone's mind. And you you know as well as everyone else that you, you have temporary negative thoughts. And how do you train a person to recognize when... The thoughts are short-term and really don't reflect the overall opinion and not... not their overall... Right, so something stupid and you're mad at the person, miserable Uh, effing idiot. (laughs) And that thought is in the head and then the other person gets pissed off. Why did you call me that and so forth? So how, how do you train a person to separate the short-term thoughts of somebody from the reality of their overall opinions?
1: That's a good question, Mark. Uh, I I think the best way to answer that is just say practice. First of all, be aware of your own feelings if you're talking to somebody. Uh, keep in mind that the average person when you're talking to them only hears like One out of every 25 words because they're thinking in their own mind about themselves all the time. And when you have emotion with it, emotion is energy. And energy is what takes a thought and brings it about into a reality. So energy follows thought. And if you learn how to train yourself not to allow negative thoughts to come in because you're right. They always will. They're around us all the time. But we can train ourselves not to accept them. And what you have to do is create a positive thought or a positive image, and you have to add the same amount of energy that required the negative thought. To be in your mind You have to replace it With the same amount of energy With the positive, positive thought
2: yeah, two, two, two thoughts on this um, We had a, a guest on Who was discussing What she called the frazzle uh, Where You're so um, Frazzled that Whatever your responses are, are Uncontrollable uh, Bradshaw uh, Thirty or forty years ago, did his same uh, concept with uh, coming home? Uh, Dianetics, one Hubbard, the reactive mind, getting you—you uh, you have to to get a handle on who you are and why your actions and responses are automatically negative before you can take the next step and accept other people's negativity. Objectively.
0: Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a good point. You would mention in the classes that if this negative thought comes into your mind, immediately recognize it and cancel, cancel. <laughs> you know,
2: cancel yeah, it, it out. Yeah, Bradshaw yeah, said, yeah. called those scripts. Um, Hubbard uh, called it the reactive mind. And both of them were an attempt to help a person... Recognize those scripts which are automatic. They're they're part of the subconscious, which is my next point. And they just they're just there, and you have to be able to recognize them, accept them, understand where they came from, and be able to rewrite them, In a positive. Right,
1: way. and then at that you're right, Mark. At that point, get rid of them and exchange it, or create a positive one.
2: Right. You know, the, rea- the overall emphasis of the reaction could be similar, but instead of it being a negative reaction, it could be focused into a positive direction.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that you taught right. in the classes is that the difference between a reaction and a chosen conscious response. And I remember in the class, one of the uh, analogies I would use, and I think you used it also, I would say, pretend you have a remote control. <laughs> like you do for your T V set. Yes. Except you have to do on yep. yourself. And you can hit pause, reflect and then right. decide your what your response is going to be. Because you can get triggered,
2: we all can yeah. into
0: a reaction yes.
2: rather than a conscious response. And that's uh that was the focus of both uh Bradshaw and uh Hubbard was and the up. recognition yep. of and then the techniques that they developed. To help you rewrite them. The other point I wanted to make um, comes from Shakespeare's The Tempest, which was rewritten uh, f- as a spa- space opera in the 50s, Forbidden Planet, with, you know, Leslie Nielsen and, uh, uh, and uh, Walter Pidgeon. Well Walter Pigeon and right? Robbie and the Robot. The, whole, the <laughs> whole point of this is that consciously you're a decent person. But in the subconscious The filters are off And that's what destroyed The civilization that was on that planet And ultimately him You know the, the person who had taken And become this subconscious monster So yep. I, I I have yep. a problem with the uh, idea that, that humans can entirely Eliminate the monster within and It's always there there's been other literary. Not efforts.
1: necessarily, Mark. Uh, I can't agree with that, and I'll tell you why. In, in all the research that I have done and all the teaching, you know, I've taught for so many years, it's silly. And that is the most important thing to understand is we have basically four levels of consciousness. One, and a human being is first born and it comes out of the mother's womb the first brain rhythms that they produce are delta brain waves then it goes from there to theta brain waves and the theta state which is an unconscious or subconscious state is the most powerful level of awareness there is After that, you have the alpha state, which is where prayer, meditation, and all the other stuff that people talk about takes place. And then the last one is the outer conscious state. We lose the natural ability of going into these altered states, the alpha and theta state, at about the age of 12 or 13 interesting because a lot of other things are happening at that same age, but what what happens is when we are young and we're living in the state of the state all the time, if somebody says something negative to us, that's impressed in our mind, and that becomes one of the leading characteristic traits of that individual once they leave that data state to work in it consciously, these are the programs that we all grow up with. And until we learn how to go back to that same level of awareness, we can replace them with positive reactions, positive thoughts, and positive words. But other than that, we're never going to get rid of them because they are implanted in our subconscious minds, yeah,
2: I have, um, yep. I have a slightly different feeling that people need both halves of the psyche. the The side that you can put in air quotes is evil provides us with strength, conviction, uh, and ability to function in. Uh, desperate times, and you cannot take that side and throw it away, because now you don't have the 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 things that are inside to get you through. Because you're just now this really nice nothing. And uh, there's been a number of examples of people attempting to illustrate that on television and movies.
0: But I have mm-hmm. that. What we're talking about here is the transformation of the individual and society by the conscious application of what are essentially spiritual or moral ethical principles. And by replacing their negative programming by positive, by voluntarily, and I'm going to get to one of Alex's challenges here in a minute, of... Consciously entering those states, those alpha and theta states, and reprogramming yourself. Now, Leary uh, advocated doing that with the use of psychedelics, which some people do in therapy or on their own. But with Alex's program, you learned how to consciously enter those alpha and theta states at will. And there were exercises to put you through creation of a new self-image. We saw some amazing transformations take place uh, by that process. Now, if I'm correct, Alex, when you first started teaching this, there were people... Uh, psychologists or doctors or whatever who said to you, people should not have that ability. It's not right. They can't be trusted <laughs> on their own to enter these states. And you had some pretty uh, wild discussions and arguments about that, didn't you?
1: Well, let me, let me give you one that that is always kind of in the the forefront of my mind in that same respect, many years ago, uh, when I lived in Portland, uh, one of my dearest friends was the president of Lewis and Clark College, uh, Jack Howard, very, very well known in all uh, educational circles and even government. Uh, he was head of, I think, two or three different programs by the president and what have you. And he had a, uh, a symposium one time. It was, it was private, though. It was not public. And we had some of the leading uh, people, psychologists, uh, doctors, an astronaut by the name of Edgar Mitchell was there and we were we were doing all this um, and i was talking about what would, the the object was of the symposium was how can we bring about a higher level of consciousness within humanity that was the title of it and once they learned what i did on the last day and Bill, i will never forget this we were in a long table and on my left hand side jack howard who put it together, and he's the the president, he's dead now, but president of uh, Lewis and Clark College. Uh, uh, William Taylor, the physicist from Stanford, sat together. At the very end, there were about eight different people, doctors, scientists, and Edgar Mitchell, who sat there. And all of a sudden, Edgar Mitchell stands up and he starts to holler at me, and he's pointing his finger. He said, "You shouldn't be allowed to do this because you give people too much power."
0: True (laughs) story. (laughs) You give people too much power, boy. Too
1: much power. And I jumped up and I and I I I don't think I swore at him because he was very popular in those days. And this is before he started his whole movement. And, and I said, and you're the reason I did because what makes you think that you have the power to control over people and then restrict what people can do and learn? Wow. And every single person there came up to me after the whole... The symposium lasted for three or four days. And they came up to me after and everyone thanked me except Edgar Mitchell. <laughs>
2: but
1: several years later, Edgar Mitchell got off into the same area of study that we're talking about now that I did and he became very famous for that
0: amazing so he had a kind of a turnabout of the deepest seat of consciousness himself
1: right yeah. that's true yeah.
0: yeah. I thought it was interesting that uh, someone wanted a demonstration one time of people being able to voluntarily enter the, the alpha state and you had one of your students kind of wired up to a you know a brainwave reading machine, and yep, right. Tell me that story about what why it didn't seem to work at first.
1: Yeah, uh, what it was, Elmer Green, who was uh, one of the top research scientists and uh, in the world at that at that time, and he did a lot of study with the mind and uh, human potential. And he and I used to argue all the time. If we were on the show together, he would say, well, you can't teach people how to do that. You know, that's impossible, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so one day I said, okay, I'll prove it to you. And, and I went and I got an EEG machine, electroencephalograph, and I got one of my students. And we met in New York City, and Edgar Mitchell was, I mean, uh, uh, oh, yeah, was there also. And I, I hooked her up to it. And I said, okay, now, you know, go into the alpha state. And so, uh, he, ever set the machine to the alpha brain rhythm, which is, uh, I think it's what, six to 14 cycles per second. And nothing happened. And he said, see, I told you. And we, we were on the radio when this was going on. And he said, see, I told you, you can't do this. This is impossible. You know, he called me a con and all this other stuff. And then I said, no, wait a minute, something is wrong here. And I went and I had the, the, uh, the guy handling the EEG machine. I said, would you turn that to the theta state, which remember that's lower, deeper than the alpha state. Right. He turned it there, and this girl, who happened to be my my wife at that time, the girl that was doing it was creating a pure theta brainwave consciously. Elmer Green and I became great friends after that. As a matter of <laughs> fact, Elmer Green was one of the people at that symposium I just mentioned to you.
2: Well, I, I personally prefer the Alpha Beta State because I can get groceries. <laughs> That's a grocery <laughs> you know, But
0: in the Beta State, you don't have to eat. <laughs> you can be a breatharian. <laughs> just breathe the of nutrients course. out of the food. <laughs> well, I remember when... Uh, In Seattle, people were giving us, uh, uh, doing the psychic stuff. People said, well, you know, that Rondi guy says that's all fake, and no one has ever allowed themselves to be tested to prove that it really works. And I said, okay. Okay. Uh, I'm brave enough, and I think Alex is too. And I it may have been both of us went to uh, Pacific Lutheran University psychology department where, like at the beginning of Ghostbusters, where he's holding up the little cars with the squiggly lines and the star and all that and tested us. And he went, well, it's far above chance. You're right. You can do it. <laughs>
1: That very, very true and Bill, you you know for a fact, and especially with, with your and Mark's background now and what you do, we are able to pick up information outside of our own consciousness. And when when certain things happen, or when certain things are about to happen, we can change them, or at least see the results of them. And it's like you know you and I became at least well-known in certain circles of some of the people that were up in the Northwest at that time who were being killed. maybe you should say a little bit about what we did with the police up there.
0: Yeah, we were doing a seminar in Seattle when it was about the uh, middle of the day or uh, afternoon of one of the classes, and about three detectives from Seattle, uh, homicide, uh, major crimes department came to talk to us. First, I thought maybe they were going to come arrested for something, <laughs> but they, they came and they wanted to ask us if they gave us the name of someone who was kidnapped, if we could describe the kidnapper. And we looked at him and said, yep. give us the name. And they did. The name was Heidi Peterson. And we both described the same person, and their jaws dropped, and they're nodding their heads and said, that is the exact description of our primary suspect, but we don't have any evidence. But that's the person. And then uh, on February 6th, several months later, uh, got a phone call from the same detective And he asked, see, the CIA is is smarter than the FBI on their advice on how to deal with people who do what what we did. And that is, he specifically said, where will we find Heidi Peterson? And I believe we both told him the same thing. There's an exit up Interstate 5 uh, in Seattle called the Boylston-Roanoke exit. And I said, well, you know, I can't guarantee anything. We just tell you what we see. Take the Boylston-Road Oak exit off Interstate 5, and there is a clump of, like, blueberry or blackberry bushes there. That's where you'll find her. And they went right out there and found nothing. I said, well, you know, it can't be right all the time. One year later to the day, that detective called and said, you were right. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, this is the same day that you said where we'd find her. That's exactly where we found her. You were just one
1: year early. And in fact... Not only that, but in, in the exact position that they would find her, we, we we described to them.
0: Yeah. And in fact, that detective, I've, I have the study, and it'll study will actually be reprinted in your book that comes out sometime this year, of a study that was done and printed by the Department of Justice and the FBI. And, and the topic was, are psychics any good at solving cases? And the answer was no, is what they decided. But it had a, a, a footnote. Or a, a caveat. A, a caveat at the end. It says, however, one detective came up to us and said, yeah, but we were told exactly where to find the body of the kidnapped child. And they were right. There was just one Year to the day early. So it didn't solve the case, but it was accurate. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing because the next one we did was, uh, boy, I remember I was in Walla Walla, my hometown, uh, teaching one of the classes. And I guess they got hold of you up there in Seattle and they got hold of me by phone. And they, they knew just to say the name, which was Janice Ott, age 20 something, Seattle, Washington. And we said, Mary Moore Park, Lake Sammamish, unfortunately she's deceased, you'll find the body in Issaquah, Washington. And I think you actually went with the detectives out there to Issaquah.
1: Yeah, I did. They they picked me up, and as we drove into where the lake was, there was a, a, a pile of brush, and I said that she had been there but she has been moved. And we described the car that this guy was driving in. Yeah, the brown Volkswagen. This, 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 yeah, and it was that girl's car. And I said, but here... You go. Well, if you remember, they went there, and they did find her body.
0: Yeah, and they, they found two, body. but it was 15 years later. Now, you told her right there to go look for more... Fifteen years later, Ted Bundy said, there's more in Issaquah, X number of feet or yards away from where you found Janice Ott and the other young lady.
2: Knocks uh, out and searched the you know, little, little area. Yeah, they around.
0: didn't. They just found that one place where the two bodies were. And 15 years later, Bundy said basically that Alex was correct. And they went and they found the other bodies. Oh,
2: good. Can you guys help me find my car keys? (laughs) They're lucky. Their names are car keys. (laughs) Car keys. You know their age? Uh, Uh, Twelve. This
0: was very depressing, though. Uh, One reason that... See, when teaching those classes, and, of course, Alex taught them all the time, so he's more sensitive to this, is there would be 200 people... Uh, Let's say in in the lecture, and some guy in the back room yells up, Ah, I think this is all fake, this is all phony. And I could hear myself talking. I was just involuntarily speaking. And I said, before you came here, you were almost late because you were underneath the kitchen sink trying to fix a link. And your butt was sticking up in your wife's face. And his wife cracked up laughing. And he says, did you tell him that? No.
2: (laughs) As they say, say it, don't weigh it. Yeah, I, I, yeah right. I'm, I'm dyslexic. <laughs> or uh, not lexistic, but dyslexic. And I had a terrible, yeah. difficult time in school as a child. Um, and I would have I just a terrible tro- trouble reading. A, the let- words and letters would get mixed up. And then I'd forget what was there, or I just read. It was tough. So I went to the Evelyn Woodhead Sped Reading Course, where easy, I improved yeah. my comprehension 200%. <laughs> uh, you know, I had I, I lost count of the number of people that said it's all bunk, but it's not. It it changed my life and allowed me to get through school, learn how to read. You know that but my. Martha, nephew, let me tell you, I also took her course. Yeah, I absolutely. But uh, that is a funny I that? Free symbolism. Mm. When yeah. you read, you 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 read each word one at a time. Most people hear the word in their heads called called subvocalization, which uh, limits the how quickly you can read. But <clears throat> the uh, dot, the uh, Evelyn Woodhead technique teaches you. How to to get rid of subvocalization and just to see what's there. It's like turning the page upside down. It goes from you know a word to the whole page. Yeah, block thoughts. And yeah, and uh, yeah, that got me through. So-
0: There's also another treatment for dyslexia that involves using colored lenses in reading. The great trouble uh, reading because of his dyslexia. Is now a New York Times best-selling author.
2: <laughs> well, I, I am also an excellent writer. Uh, it was all technical and business-oriented, right. right. but I just, you know.
0: It's amazing that someone who had tr- such trouble reading, it. such as you and, and Todd, uh, wind up uh, being excellent writers.
2: Well, if you have to work harder at it, you ha- I have to have a significantly larger vocabulary than normal because there, are, there will be the inability at any given moment to spell the word you want to use. That's but why God go invented spell checkers. But you can go, no, no, that's useless because you don't recognize it.
0: Ah.
2: No matter what it is, it, it just isn't there. You could write the word dog a hundred times in a paper on one page, and the hundred and first time, you don't know how to spell it and you can't find it on the page. That's a difficult situation. Well, that's just the way it worked. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. you have, so you so I had a thesaurus in my head, and I could find an art that I could write. Ah, uh, smart.
0: See, the human mind is capable of all sorts of workarounds. Yeah.
2: That's one of the problems I had the most with with the handicap is you get this. We'll go look it up in a dictionary. But if you don't know how to spell it, how are you get going to look it up. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now,
0: you also had, uh, I think, an interesting influence on American culture in because of the people who attended your classes. Uh, authors such as the guy who wrote Jonathan Livingston
2: Seagull.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it's interesting you said that because in my mind, I can see... Same picture where I was standing, the classroom where it was, because it wasn't in my office. It was in a uh, a very famous photographer's off- office, and he he wanted me to do a, a private class. His name is Wingate Payne. Mm. Uh, he's passed on now too. But uh, I figured, oh, okay, I'll 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 do it as a favor, you know. But I was teaching people out of my uh, classes in New York City. So I went to his studio, which was about two or three blocks away from mine, and there were about 150 people in the class. And as I stood in class, to my left, because there was a a walkway down the middle, there was a a man, his wife, a guy that was his vice president, and the wife of another vice president. Uh, He was president of the Hertz Corporation on my right-hand side was a, uh, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. No, it was a psychologist. And next to him, on the front row, all the way over to the right was this young man. I mean, he was a few years older than I am, but uh, I liked him because he was also a pilot. We go through the whole class and uh, during, during one of the breaks, he came up to me and he said, Alex, he says, I got a real problem. He said, I've been writing a book now and I cannot figure out an ending for it. So I basically told them what to do, and I said, by the end of the class, that ending will come to you during one of our exercises. And about three months later, Jonathan Livingston Siegel was printed. Richard Bach was one of the last guests I had on my radio show a few years ago. And he said on the class, he said, "Alex, I want everyone to know that I never finished writing Jonathan Livingston Seagull, if I hadn't taken your class." And I said, "Richard, no, no, that that's not fair. You you did it. I didn't. But it opened up something in him. And my gosh, he has what six or seven best-selling books that he's done. Just great.
0: And you know that that book, that book." Was declared Jonathan Livingston Siegel. There's a book called Gull of Glory claiming that Jonathan Livingston Siegel was the Antichrist. Uh,
1: oh, gee, Earl.
0: Oh, yes, I read that and went, this is crazy.
1: Oh, <laughs> and, and somebody actually had that, had that printed?
0: Yes, it's called Gull of Glory. It's uh, oh a, <laughs> it's a real crackpot piece, <laughs> but uh, I always remember, <laughs> remember that. Did John and Yoko take your class at one time?
1: Who, who again?
0: John Lennon.
1: I was in my office one day, and I got a phone call, and the guy said, "I'd like you to teach a, a class to me and my wife." And I said, no, I won't do that, because you need the other people in the class to feed off of and get ideas and the energy. And he said, no, I don't want anyone else in the class. I said, then I can't do it. And that was John Lennon.
0: And then he put out the album I, Mind Games.
1: I, <laughs> what, what, what a schmuck. I turned down John Lennon and Uncle Yono to, to take my class. So anyway.
0: You and Decca Records who turned down the Beatles.
2: <laughs> okay. Just just as a heads up, gentlemen. Yeah. Get as much information as you can prior to making a decision. Yeah. Hi. What's your name, sir? My name is John Lennon. <laughs> yeah. that My might wife have and Yoko, would love to have you come over to our apartment. <laughs> Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. But he wanted me to teach it in my office because of the you know I had backup books and a lot of other stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I I I I think about that every once in a while as I'm kicking myself.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, we both kind of got depressed uh, <laughs> doing these readings for the cops and finding dead bodies oh. and crashed planes and. We decided actually we were approached by Washington State Penitentiary had a program to reduce recidivism to get the the guys not to come back to stop being criminals. And so uh, we were invited to Washington State Penitentiary to do classes, which we did. And there are two really interesting uh, stories from that. And that program went for uh, several years for both the inmates and the uh, families it was quite successful. One fellow, however, didn't quite understand. You did a, a great presentation on taking personal responsibility, you know, for yourself and your actions and all that. And at the end of the exercise, he came up and said, I really learned a lot. And I've decided next time I do a bank job, I'm doing it all by myself.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. They not only did did we have a class going there, but I taught for about six months at the California Institute for Women. And uh, uh, when I taught there, the first couple of classes I had, I got to know the uh, the head of the prison itself, and uh, it was a woman who was just an absolute delight. And she said, you know, tell me what you teach. And I told her, I didn't get into the psychic stuff. I said about, like you just said, responsibility, uh, improving your, your actions, improving your life, becoming a better, you know, all that stuff. And, and she said, would you teach here? And I said, yeah, but under certain conditions. And she said, what are they? And I said, we do it alone. There are no guards the time is what I say it is because they they follow certain, you know, deal where they have to eat and go to the bed and bathroom and what have you every time the, the bell rings. And she said, all right. So I, oh, and I said, and please do not have any more than 10 of the women there that were in for first degree murder. Well, I had over about 150 to 180 women in that class, and me. I was the only only male there. No guards. We ate by ourselves and everything else. And well, I had some of the greatest classes when I taught at the California Institute for Women, and. And all the classes I taught, well, you know, I I taught for so many years. I figured out uh, just to tell you just a little while ago about how many people I actually taught personally, not other teachers for me. And I had about 50,000 graduates over the years.
0: That's a lot. And, you know, there's some other amazing things that took place in your class. Uh, There was a kid, and I remember his name. I don't think I'll mention it, but... His kidneys had failed, and his prognosis was not good. And the entire class took him on as a project of vision every day, visual going into the alpha-theta states and visualizing his kidneys coming back to life and functioning perfectly. And he
2: had a miraculous cure. Um. Pearl? yeah, this isn't Star Trek 4, where McCoy <laughs> gives an older woman a pill and she grows a new kidney. Well, kind of like that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have to hold the line. That's uh, anyway,
0: he had a miraculous recovery, and his, uh, his parents wanted to come and meet us and see how it was done. And when it was all over, they said, this, this is the work of the devil, <laughs> which was rather disheartening.
1: But well, it is because, you know, people can't understand or, as Mark said, they can't take responsibility for the thoughts or the things they believe in. So they they don't believe that we as as individuals have the ability of not only affecting changes, physical, mental, psychological, within ourselves, but we can help other people make the same corrections in their own lives.
0: Yeah, it's a rather amazing.
1: We had another case of very... Go ahead. Very famous guy. His name was Alger Meadows from Dallas, Texas, an oil man. And uh, I got a call from his wife one day, and she wanted to come and take the class. And, and I said, well, I... And, and uh, she was calling from Florida because their home down there, plus his, his home in Dallas. And, uh, and I said, but... I have teachers down there. She says, oh, no, I want to take it from you. Well, she and her husband, Alger, came and took my class. And he, I won't get to the whole thing, but she was almost crippled with arthritis and couldn't walk up the stairs, which is where I had my offices and uh, and the, uh, the classroom. And she said, do you have an elevator? And I said, yes. So they came and took the class. A friend of mine by the name of Ed Horn, took her on as a project when we were doing, you know, the, the readings on other people. Right. And he worked her. And after the class was over, all of a sudden, she came running up to me and she said, come here, I want to show you something. She grabbed my hand, went out to the hallway, she ran down the stairs and up the stairs and down the stairs and up the stairs and she says, I haven't been able to walk upstairs in 10 years.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. So, so I have a, uh, a thought on, uh, on this loveliness um, My experience Has been that When You've established Your basic needs Defined as uh, uh, Food, water uh, Warmth, rest Shelter, safety Once you've achieved that um, A lot of people Just stop right there they are either unwilling to make the effort, or they're just basically afraid of the consequences of moving up uh, and becoming more self-aware and improving oneself. Uh, it, I, I, it's it's interesting. I understand this from a personal perspective. After my girlfriend passed away. Um, I was depressed, and over time, I got comfortable with the pain, and I was—I felt better about it because of the sympathy I got from others. I was basically living. You were enjoying being I depressed. Was enjoying being miserable. And it—it's—it's it's not a simple issue to get out of it it's the number of people in the world that would consciously look at this and say, Wow, maybe I can get better and then the rest of the rest are sheep. And just they're just happy the way they are and they don't want anything to change.
0: Well that goes back to the story I've told before, and Alex, I don't know if you know it, but people who listen to the show have heard it before but I'll say it again. If you have a paranoid delusion, your brain will do anything to protect it. And this is a true story. This patient had the delusion that he was dead. And he would say to the doctor, you know, I'm dead. I've been dead for several years. And the doctor says, tell me, do dead people bleed? And he says, no, of course not Dead finger And he goes, my God, I was wrong Dead people do bleed
2: <laughs> I remember And you, of course, have to be Of a certain age But I remember an episode of The Honeymooners mm-hmm. Jackie Gleason um, yeah. they, If you remember, they lived in that tiny little apartment And Ralph was right. a bus driver And he's Lamenting to his wife, you know, that I'm paying the bills and we're comfortable, but you know, there's got to be more. How do I get there? And the episode hinges around the uh, person who was in that apartment as a child, is now one of the wealthiest in the country. And he comes to visit the apartment, doesn't know anyone who lives there. And through discussions, he explains to Ralph what I did to get better and I basically you know you write down your goals and your weaknesses and your strengths and then how to take advantage of those strengths and get away you know and get rid of the weaknesses as you progress and do better with your life
0: yep you know it takes knowledge, volition, and action. Three things. You have to know what you want to do, decide that you're going to do it, and then actually do it. Most people only go as far as step one.
2: Yeah, I try. that's what I said.
0: And some go to step two, but very few put the energy... To actually arise and accomplish it As we've talked about before When Orson Welles used to talk about uh, About wine Yeah, about not about wine no <laughs> So about no wine, wine before it's time. time No, is that you want to keep That youthful belief that anything is possible You know uh, When I decided I wanted to do Be on the radio in Seattle I just assumed that I would be successful at it I didn't doubt it ah. Same thing with the TV. I, I, Same thing with uh, your classes. Same thing with my book writing career.
2: Uh, you have to believe it and take the steps to make it happen. So, is, so you're saying that uh, if, you, if you feel it, anything is possible. Is it, is it possible that you can stop mooching off of me? Yes, it is possible. <laughs>
0: but I wouldn't count
2: on it. <laughs> <laughs> I visualized well, in my mind you giving me money today. <laughs> what's uh, what's the name of your book that you got coming out? Uh,
1: um, the, promise.
0: the Promise. The Promise is Psychic by Sunday. And it's got incredible stories in it of Alex's life. And it's got all the techniques that uh, he taught in these classes. And... Uh, We're finishing it up, it should be out sometime in the next uh, 12 months. And when it is, we'll have you back. And we'll have you back. And annoy our audience. We'll annoy our audience even more. (laughs)